0: Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today it's my great pleasure to have as a guest, Keenan. Keenan, welcome to the show. What's up, my man? Looking forward to it. Hey, uh, you're definitely going to raise my energy level because I have boring corporate dude voice. (laughs) This should be a blast. For those who don't know Keenan, he is the CEO and he likes to describe himself as the chief antagonist of a sales guy. And if you haven't heard him, you'll find out why pretty soon. He's also the author of a book that I just finished reading and really thoroughly enjoyed despite having read basically every sales book on the planet. His book is called Gap Selling and I highly recommend it. And you can pretty much find Keenan everywhere. If you browse the pages of HBR, Forbes, MIT, Sloan Management Review, Fast Company, and, and probably many more. I'm sure I would lose track of it, but he is all over the place. Thanks, and again, welcome, Keenan. Thank you, my man. I love this stuff. <laughs> all right. I always like to start with a couple questions or two questions I think help people get to know you a little bit better. So the first question is, what's your favorite sales or leadership book of all time?
1: Execution by Larry Bossidy and Ram Charan.
0: What was it about that book that resonates so deeply with you?
1: So one of the things that, that is really important to me, and, and depending on who you ask and when you ask, I'll either say I'm really, really good at it or I suck at it, but the key is I focus on it constantly, and that's self-awareness and just really evaluating you know who I am, what I did, did I do a good job, did I not do a good job, and I do it my whole life, in my relationships, in work, as a as a leader, everything. And when I was younger, I realized that I all of these great ideas, and I was like a little Labrador retriever running out, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this, do, 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 do. but I had a hard time actually getting shit done, right? I remember I was in a bookstore, and I was very keen to this idea that I struggled with what I guess I called execution, and there it was, execution, and so I got it, and it was amazing. It changed my life, because now, and I think it changed my selling as well, because If you remember how it went down, it forced you to basically ask how to everything. How are you going to do that? It's a minute detail. And when I started changing my mindset and looking at everything like that's great, but how does that get done? How are we going to do that? How's that going to happen? It just changed my whole perspective on how to execute and how
0: to break problems down and how to uncover problems. And and, and it just changed who I was as a person. I remember when I read that book, I just like probably everyone, I, I feel like I have this great business idea once, once every so often, right? Once a year, once every couple of years. And then you become so protective of that idea. But I think reading that book made me realize that those ideas indeed are just a dime a dozen, right? There's so many ideas. And it truly, truly comes down to execution in every way, right? Not just product, marketing, sales, operations, everything.
1: Yep. Relationships, partnerships, friendships, Planning a vacation, everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. Are you a big planner or will you just go and show up? I like to do this thing where I just basically book a flight somewhere and I book a flight back and I just figure it out in between.
1: I'm in between. So, no, I'm not a big planner, but at the same token, there's certain things I've realized by being too reactive. It makes life difficult. So, I'll plan the trip. I just got back from Ecuador, right? I planned that in December all I did was got the flights, knew the hotels. So I I look at like a framework. I knew where I was going. I knew when I was leaving and I knew what I wanted to see. After that, I figured it all out after.
0: Folks are probably chopping at the bit to know what was your favorite sales book?
1: I would say it was Challenger Sale because I'm not a fan of tactical selling tips. I think they're all stupid, right? And I'm not a fan of sales books that really aren't sales books, but they're like productivity books, but they mask themselves as sales books, right? So, you know, sales books make the extra call and plan your day. And well, okay, great, but that's not a sales book, people. Like that's that's not helping anybody with sales. This is helping people with common management shit.
0: It's a repackaging of the seven habits of highly effective people into a sales format, right?
1: Yeah, I find most sales books to really not offer much value. And it's interesting. A lot of people ask me for a long time, are you gonna write a sales book or are you gonna do a sales training? And I wanted to really bad, but I was like, I don't have anything unique yet. Like I hadn't taken all my ideas and productized them for lack of a better word, like like organize them and sat down and say, okay, what do we have here? And so until I did that, I wasn't going to write another sales book. It just, I didn't have time for that shift, right? It, I was like I am not going to do this unless I can offer something unique, different that isn't out there. Now, obviously, There's nothing that's truly new, right? But I knew that there were a lot of things missing. And so finally I sat down one day and I I went through all my writings of two, three, four, five, I guess, five or six years. I went through everything i have been teaching. I'd gone through everything I was working with my clients and finally packed, it was no small effort. I was like, damn, I'm usually not that, (laughs) I don't work that hard.
0: Yeah, having written a couple of books myself, I know that writing is a blessing and a curse. Indeed, you are able to organize your thoughts very effectively. On those good days, it feels wonderful when you're in a state of flow, but on those bad days, it is a pain.
1: Oh, truth. So that's why I did it. So I finally said, okay, you know what? I got something that's different. And so um, that's why I love the challenger. Sorry, to your original question. It was a sales methodology, right? It was, it was a set of ideas based on data and facts about what salespeople were actually doing that was successful. It wasn't, yeah, that's why I liked it. And, and, and what they were doing is what I had done a lot of unconsciously. And it also highlighted some things that I wasn't paying attention to.
0: I have a love-hate relationship, I guess, as many people do with the Challenger Sale book. One is because it, there's not enough tactical in there, but I can appreciate if you don't like the super tactical stuff, then it won't resonate with you. For me, the big takeaway, I guess, is it's teach Taylor and take control. But you mentioned Challenger a few times in gap selling, and One thing that you mentioned was basically that the people who are challenger sellers, I think, are basically extremely direct. You didn't use the word aggressive, but do you think to be a successful challenger sale, you know, you have to have the Keenan style of in your face or not necessarily? No, no, not at all.
1: Not at all. And if you listen to me on a call, I'm not really in your face. Like I'm in your face when I'm on social because I have to get your attention. You don't know me. I'm not sitting across from you. And so I gotta do something that's gonna capture and hold you, right? When I'm talking to you on the phone, or I, we're in a meeting, I'm direct, but I, I'm not aggressive, you don't need to be, right? And I think, no, I don't think, I know, in one of the chapters, I talk about the different types of questions, and one of them is provoking questions. And a provoking question is a way to challenge your customer and the way they're thinking, right? Another way to do it is to just challenge them when there's inconsistencies. You don't have to be aggressive. Let's say you sell gym membership. Someone says to you, look, you know, I'm 75 pounds overweight. My doctor told me I'm I'm close to diabetes. And then you say, well, great. I can help you with training and I can help you with the gym. And then you say, well, you know, I don't know. It's too expensive. You don't have to be aggressive to say I'm confused. You said your life is terrible. You said you're unhappy. You said you're almost going to have diabetes. I'm confused why you think 80 bucks a month is too expensive.
0: Yeah, you just got at something I thought was actually one of the more novel ads in the, in the book, which is how to handle objections, right? That almost every sales trainer or even everybody's manager basically tells them that, you know, you listen, you acknowledge, you empathize, and then you ask some clarifying questions, right? And then once you've clarified, then you respond and then check in at the end to make sure that the objection was handled. You have a bit of a different approach that does rely on some of those questions. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah,
1: so, so I always say, look, the sale is won or lost in the beginning. Hands down, end of discussion. And unfortunately, most sales trainings and education focuses too far in the middle in the end. And so the reason being is this, if I can figure out why you're trying to buy, the impact of the current environment on you, how it's negatively affecting you, whatever those, all those reasons are, when I get to the end and you challenge a particular um, lack of a feature, or you challenge the price, or you push back on this, I don't have to overcome your objection. I have to get you to recognize why your objection is stupid, right? I should see an objection coming. If I understand all of that stuff I just share with you, you know, we talk about in the book, current state, future state, and the five elements underneath them, right? The physical and literal, the problem, the impact, the root cause and the emotion, if I understand that in depth, I should have got my ass out weeks or months ago. It allows me to qualify the value and impact that I can deliver. So if I'm still in the game, I know that I can deliver for you and deliver what you'll try, the outcome you're trying to get. So therefore, when you come up with an objection, simply to me, that is you misunderstood something. And I just have to challenge you back on why that's important to you. And have you explained to me why that's the problem? Not me explain it to you,
0: I think it actually is quite brilliant to actually throw their ultimate end objective back at them when they launch an objection at you. I do think that's a super effective thing. You just previewed a little bit of what your definition of gap selling is. Can you go into that in a little bit more depth? You know, we were talking earlier, like you know, why it
1: took me so long. I guess it depends on who you ask, but why for so long I didn't write the book and didn't offer sales training or anything because I didn't want to just be another has been and just just want to put something out that, that looked like everybody else's. And I was looking for that hook or that trigger that that I knew my stuff was different, but I just, you know, it's hard, right? And it finally hit me that traditional sales training is not layered on top of the psychological way at which we make decisions, right? We make decisions to change. That is at the end of the day, at the core of all sales, is a desire or the thought of change. So, okay, well, let's break that down. What does change mean? Change means I wanna move from where I am today to a new place. And every single time we buy something, whether it's a pack of gum in the store or it's an enterprise ERP system for a $7 billion company, it's still change. And so I was like, well, if we're going to be changing, we had better build a sales methodology that mirrors someone's change process, whether it's conscious or subconscious and the psychological elements that come with that. What I used to say to people all the time is, hey, when you're looking to change or you're looking to buy something, what's the first thing you do? You either consciously or subconsciously evaluate where you are today. You're like, oh, I don't like this or this hurts. this I'm tired of doing this. This sucks. It takes too long. It hurts. It's painful, blah, blah, blah. You're spending all this time evaluating where you are. Then somehow, someway, you start comparing that to where you could be. Man, it would be nice if I get this done fast. Ooh, it would be nice if I could make that happen. Ooh, it would be nice if, and all this stuff in the future state. Well, between those two is a gap. And the bigger the gap, the more money you're willing to pay, the more effort you'll put into it, the greater impact it will have. And so I was like, well, shit, if that's how people buy, consciously or subcurrency, we had better build a selling methodology that mirrors that. And that's what gap selling is about.
0: One of the biggest issues with even being able to do that is being able to get people to trust you enough to share that much information with you. How do you really, really start the sales process in order to gain that trust? I talk about
1: a term called product centric selling versus problem centric selling. If you run a search term problem centric selling, I think me or a sales guy own like almost like the entire phrase. There might be a few other people that tweak some stuff in there. And it's because no one really thought about this. When you look at your company's sales training and you look at your company's trainings, they're product centric. They bring you in and they teach you about the product. And I argue, no, 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 no. Teach them about the problems your customers and buyers are having in their business that you solve. Look, your product only solves a handful of major business problems, right? Now look, you may have some with a whole bunch of modules and you could stretch that out, but in most cases, in most companies, Whatever it is you're selling can handle and solve in a material fashion, maybe five, six, seven, eight at the most, but usually it's only three or four major material problems. So teach your salespeople what those problems are, why those problems exist, the impact those problems have on an organization, and teach them how to inquire about those problems through those filters. And when you do that, here's the amazing thing when people ask, powerful, thoughtful questions about a particular problem, people find that to be credible and want to have that discussion. I liken it to a doctor. You go into a doctor and he says, tell me about how you're feeling. If they ask one or two high level stupid questions after you tell them, you don't feel too good. But if they ask you really unique questions that sometimes make you say, why did they just ask that question? Why did he ask if I'm what I had for breakfast? Or why did he ask if I've recently been to a chicken farm? You're like, why, why? And then he tells you why, and it's very relevant. You're like, oh my God, this guy's a genius.
0: With the doctor thing, uh, that reminds me also of your other concept of root cause, which I think was a great addition to the way people think about sales and the distinction between the fact that you can have different solutions based on the root cause of the problem. I'd love for you to share that with the listeners as well.
1: The headache example is my favorite one because it's easy. What I do is I get people to, to, I say, how many people have had a a migraine headache? And they raise their hand. I said, okay, for those of you who haven't, I explain how bad a migraine headache is. And I say, pretend it's Sunday morning. You wake up and you've got a migraine headache. You can't see. You're super sensitive to light. Noise is critical. Like it's pounding in your head. You just got to lay in the dark and you can't move. I said, how many of you would pay five bucks for a pill to make that go away? And everybody puts their hands up. But I say, how many, keep them up. Who would pay 10, 50, 100, 150, 500? And I get to around between 300 and 500, all the hands start to come back down, right? And then I said, but wait, let me ask you a few more questions. And I said, pretend I asked you a bunch of questions. And I say, what do you have to do on Monday? And you say, oh, shoot, I have a proposal done. I say, how much is that proposal worth? And you say, $5 million. So how much do you get in commission for that? You say, oh, I get $50,000. I said, can you get the proposal done now with this headache? No. I said, what is your quota? You say your quota is um, $7 million. I said, so this is going to be over five-sevenths of your quota. Yes. Holy crap. Oh my god, I didn't think about it. So then I said, OK, how many of you would you pay $500 for this pill now? And they all raised their hand again. And I said, keep it up until I get there. And I go 1, 000, 1, $500, $1,000, $1,500, $2,000, $3,000, about $5,000 of hand stock coming down. I said, oh, look. You just went from not willing to pay 300 for a pill. Now you want to pay 5,000. They all chuckle. I said, let me say, ask you a few more questions. You say, sure. I said, I asked you, uh, how long have you had these headaches? You said, it's so funny you asked that. They just started about six or seven months ago. I said, where does it hurt? All over? You said, no, it only hurts in one specific spot. And I said, let me ask you this question. I said, when, does it, are your motor skills a little weird lately? And they say, it's so funny you ask that. Every once in a while, I'll go to grab my glass or go to pick something up and I'll stumble or I'll miss them. I don't feel completely centered. And I was like, can I take a picture? You know, MRI. They say, sure. I take an MRI and I find a brain tumor. You got six months to live. This pill will solve that brain tumor and it'll save you. How many of you will pay $5,000 for that? Now all the hands go right back up.
0: <laughs> yeah. The context is everything, right?
1: Yes. All of those things that you just called context are the impact. It's the impact to the person so in each case the person came to solve a headache they all had a headache right but the key of the matter is it's not the headache that drives the buying decision it's the impact and this is where i really fuck people up after this i say this okay all of you you bought the pill and i saved your life and you were so impressed with you you came and sold for me now and now you're selling the pill and i said so let me ask you this you go out and you talk to this woman, you determine that she's got a, a malignant brain tumor and she's gonna die in six months, and you go and you put it into the, the CRM that you got a new deal for a million bucks. How many of you pumped that you're gonna close this million dollar deal? And they all raise their hand. And I'm your sales manager and I say, not so fast. And they all look at me like, why? Why? And I ask one question, I go, how old is this woman? And they go, I don't know. I go, go find out. And they go find out and they come back, she's 92. I go, where's she living? In a nursing home. I said, when's the last time she saw her kids? It only comes once every year. When's the last time you saw her grandkids? She sees them once every two years. How long has she been in the nursing home? 15 years. You think that woman's going to pay a million bucks?
0: Nope. It's even more subtle context, right? That, That you have to get deep into why it is that they even have the pain that they have, right?
1: Why do they have the pain? But then what is the impact to the pain? I mean, to the organization, right? Like, how does it affect them? The pain is the headache, right? That's one of the things that drives me crazy. People say, go find the pain. You found the pain, the pain is the headache.
0: Well, I did want to rewind to something you said, which is that in order for salespeople to gain trust and credibility, they need to be able to educate buyers and bring value, but what do you say to newer salespeople, right? People who maybe they just got promoted from SDR and they're in their first, whatever, two, three, four years of their career, or even they may be experienced sellers and they've switched from one company to a next, and they don't have that depth of expertise in the problem solving for the industry they're selling into, how did those folks be successful? Go get the problem. Go
1: educate yourself on the problem. I would argue that if you've been an SDR for two or three years in a particular industry or for a particular company, and you haven't taken the time to figure out what problems your product or service solves and how those problems manifest themselves in your customer, you haven't been doing your job. That's my pet peeve with salespeople, right? Salespeople piss me off because they're arrogant. Look, I I love arrogant people. I'm arrogant. I love arrogance, like positive, confident arrogance, but salespeople are the the bad arrogance they think they know it all and they think they're here to rescue but half of them don't spend the time to actually get in the world of the very people they're selling to they don't see themselves as helpers they're takers they're like i'm in this for the quota i'm in this for prison's club i'm in this for commissions i'm in this to make money i will not hire a salesperson who says their main motivation is money fuck off all you care about is you and you're not going to care about my customer and i won't work for a company that's all they care about is the money If you switch your mindset and and look at yourself as a helper, look at yourself as someone whose job it is to make the life and world of the person you're selling to better, by default, you have to understand their world. And therefore, you should be researching, asking questions, leveraging industry knowledge, leveraging experiential knowledge. As they answer the questions, you've sold to all these different customers and you heard what they're going through, and you just need to be committed to understanding that. And
0: again, the best metaphor or analogy is a doctor. Even on the selfish side, why wouldn't salespeople spend more time? And I I agree with you, by the way. Like, I, I don't see that many salespeople who are true students of the industries that they sell into. And if they were, they would be so much more successful. What do you think is preventing them from spending the time doing that?
1: I don't know. I wish I
0: knew. I need to figure it out because I think it'd be a great
1: book if not if at least not a great video that I could do on LinkedIn. I wish I knew. I want to say laziness. I want to say they're not thinking. I want to say their company doesn't set them up for that because you know companies just bring on training and teach them, company look, companies are just as guilty as this. I have said this several times and no one's taken me up on it yet. I think a company's sales training and onboarding training should actually spend more time focused on the
0: problems they
1: solve. And don't even worry about the product.
0: Then let people learn the product on their own, I guess. I mean, I, as I reflect on sales training and the various places I've been at, they they do focus on both. They do, as you're saying, tend to spend a lot more time on the product because in so many places, markets have become so competitive that so many products are jam-packed with features. The salespeople feel like they need to be proficient in all the nooks and crannies of all those product features. I'm with you. They don't necessarily need to do that, and they could probably rely on sales engineers, and they probably only need to know the features that are actually relevant to solve the problem. Corporations probably are, to some extent, guilty. And if you think about all the ongoing training, right, every time there's a new product release or some sort of feature enhancement, there's a whole sales enablement cadence that happens around that.
1: Yeah, around that product feature. But I will bet that 995 out of a thousand times. If you understand the problem, the impact and the root cause that your customer is struggling with, then the whole product and features and all of that will be a cakewalk. And the reason that everybody focuses on the features and functions and they it's getting super competitive. So they need to focus on the features is because they're not overly informed on the problem. So it's a default reaction. If I completely and utterly understand the problems my customers are dealing with, by default, to solve it, the features present themselves. They take care of themselves, right? Salespeople in the sales industry and the sales world does not operate through the filter. Our job is to fix it. It's been built on the idea. It's our job to sell it, not our job to fix it. Think about those paradigms.
0: Why do you think some of this stuff doesn't stick? I mean, I don't know how old spin selling is. It's probably 20, 30 plus years old, right? Situation, problem, implication, need, payoff. Thinkers and thought leaders on sales have been talking about this for decades, literally decades, and still I listen to demos and, and all the places I've worked at and it is all feature, feature, feature. It's still not sticking.
1: I think it's a whole bunch of things. I think it's the culture of sales in general. I think it is also the pressure for people to, you know, make quota and stuff like that. And I think they believe it's easier. I think it is easier, actually. It's easier to push a product. It's easier to teach people about what your stuff does. I just think it's easier. So I think between it easier and the culture of our society, of our, well, I guess of the sales world, I think those two drive it. I think also the last one is, I don't really think, and I never read Spin, so I can't speak to how well it allowed the execution element, like you said, with as much we loved it, the execution of challenge is very difficult because, like you said, there weren't a lot of tactical elements to it. So I don't know that there's been a really good structure that has allowed people to embrace and execute spin in this type of problem-centric selling. So they just default to what they know. And that's one of the things I'm excited about with gap selling. The concept is so simple. Once you go through it and it's laid out, I really simply say it. Here it is. Go find the current state physical and literal problem impact, root cause and emotion, done. Then I say, go find the future state, right? And the same things again. And then I say, now calculate the gap. I mean, it's a whole book, but if you, if you narrow it down to that and sales managers simply come back from a sales call, they go through the CRM and they say, okay, what's the problem? It's not that hard to stick to.
0: Yeah, you just mentioned future state, by the way. And I thought that was another interesting addition. I read another book recently, Selling Above and Below the Line which talked about basically pitching business value to the economic decision maker, if you will, and then pitching technical value to the user buyers and the technical buyers. Can you talk a little bit about how that applies in the future state? Is there one future state or, or in that same respect, are there multiple future states that you need to be prepared to describe?
1: Now, I know you didn't mean this, but this actually tacks on to the question you asked before. Notice your jargon there. Is it multiple future states you need to describe or is it just one future state? And the bottom line is what I try to tell people in gap Selling is I don't describe anything. I learn it. I understand what your future state is and then I parrot it back to you. So if we use the pill example, I just ask questions to uncover your future state. That's why it's problem centric and not product centric. You're going to tell me what you want to accomplish. You're going to tell me why you want to accomplish it. You're going to tell me about where you are today and why you can't get there and the impact it's having on you and why it hurts so bad. And then I'm going to say, yes, I can or I can't fix it for you. And if I can, I'll start explaining to you why and how I can fix it. So the answer to your question is, yes, it's going to be different. The future state is going to be different for every person who's participating in the sales process, right? And so the future state for, let's say, the C-level, depending on what is you're selling and what how big the company is, could be everything from, I am trying to get my series B of funding and I can't because these six things are screwing me up. It could be I'm the CEO of a Fortune 500, and we're not making our numbers, or our market cap is sliding, and our stock is sliding. It could be that we're at risk of being purchased by somebody. It could be we're not meeting our dividends. Like You're going to have, or that person is going to have their own concerns and their own issues at the level that affects their job and their success criteria, and then it can work its way all the way down to the person in the front line who uses it every day, and theirs is going to be different too.
0: In your answer there, one of the things you mentioned was like, yes, I can fix this or no, I can't fix this for you if I know their future state. In the book, you talked about something that I also thought was a little counter to what most people talk about, which is whether or not you should ever fire a prospect. So let's say you, you figure out that you can't fix something for someone. Do you tell them that? And, and do you say, look, I'm not going to work with you? Or how do you handle that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's
1: what I love about gap selling. At the end of the day, a true gap seller, you don't need to pitch. I mean, you have to highlight your your solution based on what you learn, but the pitch isn't really a pitch and it comes later. But secondly is you uncover the value before the customer does. I say it in the book, you know before they do, right? So if I realize that someone is trying to get something done and I understand the current state brilliantly, I understand the physical and literal, I understand the problem, I understand the impact, I know the root cause, and then I know the future state and the desired outcome And I know that my product or service just can't deliver on that because we don't have a feature that is material to getting it done or the cost of my product doesn't really fit within the size of the problem and what they're losing today, what they're trying to attain tomorrow, whatever it is. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Like, it's really simple. It's like, you know, I I appreciate it, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, but based on what you've told me and based on where you're going, I don't think we're the best fit. You need to get these three things done. We can't do one of these. And without that, I don't see how you're going to get to XYZ desired future state. So I'd like to recommend somebody else or, or I don't even know who can do that, but I know that we can't, and I'm not comfortable selling this to you.
0: Do you think that's going for the no, or that's not going for the no? I,
1: I, okay, I don't know. That's a tough question because here, a lot of times my, my interpretation of go for the no is psychological bullshit that people try to do to manipulate the sales process, Right when I described what I described, it wasn't going for no, it was a genuine observation that I genuinely don't believe that I can deliver what you want. It's not manipulation. It's not going for a no. I don't need to go for a no. Again, if that's why I said the sale starts in the beginning. I don't set out to go for a no. I don't set out to go for a yes. I don't set out to, to close the deal, to not close the deal. I set out. To, as best as I possibly can, understand their entire environment and the gap. And once I've done that, I now know the value of my offering in their unique, customized, specific terms and measurements. This becomes a one-off sale that looks like no other sale on the planet. And if I can get there, then I can now determine the value and say, oh, this is absolutely worth it. This is the best choice for them. And they should pay twice what we offer, but we don't charge that much. This is a slam dunk. Or it's like, well, I don't know. I don't know. I could deliver as much as we want or a little more expensive than I think, or this is, they should not be buying this.
0: That's encouragement for folks to read the book. For listeners, there's uh, some great commentary that Keenan provides on things like, how do you jumpstart a stall deal? How do you run pipeline reviews if you're a sales manager? How do you look for hiring? And then one of the things Keenan's quite famous for is, I'll call it his BANT rent uh, and, and other approaches to qualification. So you're going to have to read the book to get that stuff. For those listeners, go out and uh, check out Keenan's book, Gap Selling. I guarantee you're going to get a ton out of it. Keenan, again, it was such a pleasure to have you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, my man.
0: Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from Sales Loft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingschern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thank you for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.